Pattern Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Chapter 3 The caverns were deep catacombing the interior of the mountains to seemingly unfathomable extents. Pockets of ice must have formed in the world's ancient past, then melted later as the mountains above were lifted, leaving hollow structures of semi-supported stone throughout. Some had already collapsed. Who could say when the currently intact ones might also? The weight of the stone that made up the mountains had to be enormous. Here and there were scattered small pools of water, The only creatures about were insects, too tiny for me to make out any significant features, and a few tadpoles. They struck me as tadpoles, at least, with small four appendages that looked only partially formed. They could also have simply evolved for life in the caverns, needing only to crawl short distances from one pool to the next, or to get themselves back into the water if suddenly swept out. I certainly hadn't seen anything I could call the adult stage of that species. I had been lost in these caves for what must have been weeks. My supplies were limited. I had a few dense, bar-like rations I kept with me for, well, cases like this. I had drunk all the water I had taken with me some time ago and had been living off what I could treat with my personal filtration device. The pools scattered in the cave seemed stagnant, though still clear enough that it suggested some periodic recirculation of the waters. Perhaps steam came up through vents or rainwater drained down from the surface, occasionally disturbing and redistributing these pools from their current pockets and eroding new channels through which the water could flow. With the ample supply of water in the pools, the filtration system was my bottleneck. The water needed enough sterilization before drinking that getting an adequate amount through was quite a chore, and I seemed to always be thirsty. Being surrounded by the riches of undrinkable water in the cave and limited to the throughput of my filter only made that thirst less bearable. My food would run out regardless in only a few days. I needed some plan to... only a few days. I stopped. Days? Had I slept in the cave? Did that sleep thrust me into the dream world as I knew it must? Was it the full strength of that shared hallucination? Or something fainter? the playground in which I had begun to perfect my dreamcraft on O'Neary Station. How had I come to be in the caves in the first place? What had I set out to do? Pieces of my mind cohered, tendrils reaching through gaps in my memory like plant roots working through cracks in ancient stone. The scene in which I found myself began to change. Not its contents, I was still in those caverns. But their significance, my reckoning, they had all shifted. The familiarity, the hint from which my mind had confabulated the weeks, it all began to dissipate. I had not been here weeks, possibly only an hour, maybe a few minutes. I had lost myself temporarily, entering the dream world from Viscania Prime's surface where it was so strong. But I had recovered. I was through the first step. I was Victor Goto, the renouncer of Oneri Station. I had come back to my home world to enter the dream world there intentionally, and I had work to do. First, though, to get out of these caves. My escape, such that it was, had filled me with a sense of cautious optimism. The task ahead was not any easier, but it now felt manageable. 
Navigating out of the cave simply took time and discipline. Every guess about the direction of a trace of outside wind had to be tested, then correlated with the positions of the pools of water and the smells the wind carried. I stacked rocks as I progressed, careful not to repeat any links in the path I plotted through the caves. Soon, fragments of light began to appear, and the guesswork was mostly done. My form changed as I moved throughout. When I encountered small passages, I would find I was smaller as well. Difficult ascents appeared before me here and there, but the tendons in my hands and forearms strengthened in time to meet the challenge. This was the work of my unconscious, reshaping me as I went. I would find items or traits I needed to possess to meet obstacles as I came across them. I worked my way upward, stepping and scrambling, until the light overtook the cave walls and the space of my vision. I was out in the open air. I should say something about the dream world and my training for it here. In the archives of Earth, there are texts that deal with the subject of lucid dreaming. And though this may be an acceptable starting point, my practice differed from it significantly. In lucid dreaming, the intent is to become awake, to make yourself aware of the dream state so that your conscious mind can take over and transport you to new places, using dreaming as a palette for everything from spiritual training to wish fulfillment. But Viscania Prime's dream world differs from normal human dreaming. We are not free to form whatever small, partial universe our brain conjures, but instead we are bound to fixed circumstances, at least to an extent. We can exercise some limited control of our own projections into that dream world, but much of that projection is not consciously determined. The portion that is conscious is limited by slots of working memory and the reality of sequential processing. The lion's share of raw thinking power is in the unconscious. And so the unconscious must be harnessed and brought to bear on the problems at hand in the dream world, just as it handles our perception and movement in the waking world. The dream world's interface, as we might term it, is a humble one. A small sphere of perceptual reality and intentionality any conscious being can bring with them in shape. I needed everything I could muster to have any hope of navigating intentionally, to keep my movement free and my orientation clear, To deal with confrontations, I needed as much mastery over my unconscious self and its processes as possible. Mastery, a silly word for it, to be quite honest. Once one has undergone that training, as I did for those 30 years on Oneri Station, it is as much about releasing control as gaining it. What did I do all that time? The simplest way I could describe it is to say that I meditated, But this was as unlike meditation on Earth as a bird's flight as unlike spacecrafts. My birthright is partial machine engineering, and the work of the machines has all the hallmarks of any other normal engineering effort. Escape hatches, knobs with which to manipulate runtime state and arbitrary bias terms. Operating in a biological medium, these took the form of synthetic glands which partially replaced, partially hijacked my existing endocrine system. The machines had found it necessary to increment or decrement levels of circulating hormones, such as adrenaline, oxytocin, and cortisol, in their early engineering efforts, or at times to introduce a variety of synthetic chemicals, painkillers, antibiotics, stimulants and depressants, hallucinogens. 
At my request, I received implants and machine assistance to gain control of this augmented endocrine system myself. On Earth of old, one may have focused on the breath or some other fixed point over the course of a meditation, or shifted awareness through the body and the environment in some meaningful way. Or one engaged fully with a simple task, repetition of a word, maintenance of posture. I had similar concerns, but I was also engaged with indirect manipulation of the biochemical substrate. I say indirect because not all of the components were consciously accessible. That is, they were only subject to the same behavioral manipulation as one's motivation or mood, just more potent once engaged. Now I was out of the caves atop a cliff, looking at the red sun above me, the same red sun we see from Viscania Prime's surface. The sun was cooler than Earth's. The habitable zone within which Viscania Prime orbited was much closer, and so the sun was a giant in the sky. Its size and fixed position unnerved those of us with Earth's biological heritage, made us feel claustrophobic. We had our whole lives to habituate to it, but you couldn't help the sense that it had snuck up on you. Its nearness seemed wrong. And here it was, the same red beast shining above in the dream world. Why was that sun present? The surface before me looked nothing like the Viscania Prime of today. Was the dream world a vision into a far ancient form of the Viscania system, or a complete fanciful environment? Had its creators, if the dream world had creators, put it there consciously? Or was it something assumed and undiscussed? Were they earlier inhabitants of Viscania Prime? If so, perhaps in crafting this place, this lone world and the shape and position of its sun was the only reference point they had known, an obvious truth they had not considered altering. Looking at it now, though, I found I felt no claustrophobia. It seemed as natural to me as any world star might. Perhaps the dream world reshaped my mind such that I could not carry any sense of the sun's strangeness into my thoughts. Any memories I replayed of earlier times in the dream world were such well-worn paths in my brain that I could not tell you if the sun had seemed strange in my early days here, either on the surface, in my youth, or in my detached time on Onary Station. At present, the sun guided my navigation. I was on one island of many in an archipelago, a common organization of land throughout the dream world. The smell of brine was in the air, and a green shimmer of light surrounded me. In every direction, it seemed as though a landscape of otherworldly trees was spread before me. I knew which island chain it must be. We call this part of the dream world the false forests. What appears to be many trees from a distance is really a scatter of thin, leaf-like crystalline structures, organisms of some form who make their home in a landscape of rock spires. These crystalline organisms are what passes for plant life in the dream world. Their green color seemed to match the capacity for photosynthesis that the plants on Earth and the ones we had taken with us and adapted to life on Viscania Prime for that matter all possessed. The exact hue of green they reflected was under their adaptive control, perhaps through some modulation of their crystalline structure. I had seen entire fields reorient before, like a projector changing the image it cast, the exact color and direction of the light rippling dramatically in waves. These crystalline leaves were also animal-like. 
if the dream world were Viscania Prime's ancient past, they had likely evolved to take full advantage of the glut of light exposure on the portion of the surface facing the sun. They possessed a single, coil-like protuberance on their downward side, much smaller in mass than the broad leaf structure of their top end. This was their means of locomotion, and when tensed, this biological spring was sufficient to bounce them into the air. This sudden bounce seemed automatic whenever it occurred, a simple reflex mechanism in the organism, possibly reacting to its current light exposure or the direction and relative temperature of the prevailing wind. I doubted any capacity for meaningful motor planning. These reflexive bounces would allow them to spread out and be stirred through gusts of wind in the lower atmosphere or along the surface of the ocean. They struck me as lily pads hopping about like aimless frogs. I thought often about the few strange organisms that were found on the surface of the dream world. Other than a handful of species, such as the crystalline lily pads and tadpoles from the caves, the dream world was mostly devoid of life on land. The oceans were different, teeming with strange creatures, though these were fast and widely scattered. We who found ourselves near the sea in dreams could barely track the movement of their colors in the sea, the currents moving at higher speeds than any we would venture to swim. The oceans would be the planet's great circulatory mechanism. Surely no surface dweller that had evolved in the light or dark could bear the temperature or atmospheric conditions of the other side. But the ocean would be a stabilizing body, the fast currents carrying life forms that, in its farthest depths, could permeate boundaries that seemed fixed at the surface, not knowing or caring what the surface temperature above them might be. The dream world was not a proper ecosystem, though. I understood this much from my journeys through it. The range of perception it could invoke was limited as well. It could impart a relative sense of hot and cold, but no feeling of burning up alive or freezing. I could not say what temperatures I had felt standing in the open air, or in which regions and climates certain creatures ranged. The rock forms and land structure made only the most general geological sense. I could not place the features precisely on a map, but those that were near one another remained near each other over multiple dreamings. In sum, the dream world did not seem to flow out of some functionally deterministic physical or biological model. These were the reflections of how things had seemed to some being or beings at some point in time, and the world consisted only of a collection of such seemings, consistent and coherent enough as a set of waking interactions had likely produced the perceptual bank on which this place was constructed. Yet through some fault of memory or some convenience in its construction, the details of the model behind the perceptions remained fuzzy. The accuracy of my orienteering was therefore limited. The dream world, lacking the discipline of physical reality, only allowed for rough navigation by means of landmark or celestial body. I could use the sun's position to place myself in the twilight band and determine a very rough north and south bearing as well as my position along it. I would have to take the whole of those approximations available to me and distill them into one clear action. Owen, where can I find you? I thought of my hand over his back in the hospital on the waking world, but no intuition or clarity of purpose came to me. I was not close enough, I decided. I knew I only had so much time to find him before I would eventually wake. If I could not do it, 
It would be many sleep and wake cycles before I found any sign, or before I decided my efforts had been wasted and there was nothing for me to find. The island I was on now was quite small. My best hope would be to find some landmark or some monument. In the dream world, there are towering structures, impossibly smooth or made up of stacked stones, as if built by someone or something, though we know not who. There are also distinct mountain shapes, rock spires, the kinds of landmarks that dot any natural surface. I had tracked active dreamers in the dream world before, preparing for this task. To find a person, to find traces of a mind, was somewhere between an animal tracking by smell and a mineral prospector making sense of the nearby geology. We were all drawn to the built monuments and natural landmarks. Even beyond their distinctiveness, all who dream feel something built into the very essence of the dream world pulling them towards these features. At the monuments, traces of the memories and thoughts of all who pass remain, like a creature leaving a scent. Meditating in such places, I can fix on the particular quality of this or that thought, keeping the color or note in mind. The remaining task is simply a matter of finding the next thought of the same color, then the next from there, until you come upon the dreamer. This dream world meditation is a generalization of mind-wandering and the combination of control, or conditioning and controlled yielding, to be more precise, a meditator can bring to it. Those of us not awake to our minds wandering are thrust about mindlessly by the firings of our default mode network. Thoughts of sex, revenge, entertainment, they dominate us, emerging from the unconscious and trapping our ideation in their plotting. Not that we should consider these thoughts enemies and engage in battle with them. It is appropriate to feel gratitude that they served their evolutionary purpose at one point in time. But what works on a small scale in the past can pose challenges at a large scale in the future. And so we, with discipline, put away the childish things of our species. You cannot simply will yourself to control your mind-wandering. Over time, however, you can condition the habit of mind-wandering into something else. With hormonal and chemical coaxing, you can increase the quantity of your practice. But the practice and its volume is ultimately all there is. There are no shortcuts. I did not exercise my will when tracking. I had conditioned my own mental processes over many years to cue off my conscious intentions, taking on the pursuit of a single fixed point in some cases, and to be open to a vast surface of awareness in others. From Oneri Station, I applied this conditioning at first to shape my own thoughts and behavior in the waking world. Then I found these techniques of introspection could be applied to the situations I encountered in the dream world as well. This disciplined monitoring of awareness, this appraisal of thoughts and their character, this conditioned ability to group and follow related thoughts without relent, these were the mechanisms by which to trace a thought to its dreamer. From that remote orbit, I could only track the strongest traces of dreamers. The entire dream world was fainter from there, as if the lights and sounds and the dreams and minds were all turned down to a dim glow. It made the progression of my practice natural. Like with any training or learning, starting from easier targets made the task of building up to difficulty possible, removing needless flailing. So much of my own progress had been about the admission that I needed to start somewhere easier. I was weak, unable to handle the intensity of the dream world without being carried away. But from an area station, I could gain some distance, break things down into the simplest form, 
to leave my friends, my family, and home such as it was, to dedicate myself exclusively to the easiest form of the task I could construct, to sit alone with my thoughts and to venture forth daily as I fell asleep into the reduced version of the dream world. Now, dreaming on the surface, the occasional residue of thoughts from passing dreamers was much stronger. I knew the island I was on was less well-traveled than parts I'd been to before, and even then it was like discovering a hidden world in soil after being given a microscope. I could feel the poise of curiosity from dreaming wanderers who had been through there before me, a subtle shift in the movement of the eyes and posture accompanying the anticipation of exploration, an additional weight in the step slowing down to observe new things, the brain gearing up for the extra work of encoding novelty. I did not expect to find Owen or even a landmark tanker my search from there. I took note of the position of the sun again, resigned to the more general bearings I knew the dream world's nature offered me. It at least confirmed I was in the region of the islands that I expected to be in, near the hotter edge of the habitable band. Oriented from there, I walked to the shore. The direction of the salty sea breeze seemed to align with those expectations. I glanced around me the vast flocks of crystalline leaves and their emerald shimmer keeping my attention as I considered where to head next. In the dream world, we are budgeted some small bit of dream matter for our purposes. This use is shaped by the unconscious. Dreaming without other intentions, we bring only something like a self-image, an expectation of two arms, two legs, and a mouth. Some of this is dictated by our brain and however the information it carries is able to interact with the medium of the dream world, such as it is. Our mind carries inside it a sense of the body it belongs to, and the interface points to send and receive signals from our limbs. These expectations, at least their representation in our brain, are something we take to the dream world with us. I spoke before of how my unconscious had altered my form as necessary in my departure from the caverns. Through years of training, I had learned to be a shapeshifter in this place. To recondition this aspect of my brain's function required chemical aid a set of hallucinogenic molecules, those things which can function as, mimic, excite, or inhibit our various neurotransmitters, are necessary to reshape one's own image. Exposure to them, however, threatens a loss of the sense of self and a loss of control. The chemical modifications the machines and I had cooperated on, however, ensured I could scale the dose as my training progressed. Slowly, with years of practice, I envisioned new limbs, new purposes, new means of communication, distributions and consolidations of physical processes and their purposes, wielded them in turn, knew their weight. I made use of my shape-shifting powers in the islands now, growing hooks along my back and upper arms as well as the backs of my legs. With these, I could attach the crystal leaves to my body, becoming something between a human wingsuit and an emerald bird. Using the same self-attention it takes to suck in one's gut, I became less and less weighty, floated up off the ground, began testing my bearings, my ability to steer, verifying most importantly that I could land again without too much difficulty. When I was satisfied, I sucked in all the weight I could manage, lifted up fully into the air, then headed toward the larger shore in the direction of the dark boundary of the dream world's twilight band. The Rights of the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback format now. The 
the album Viscania Prime, an EP, Rights of the Renouncer, are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.